0: Welcome to Health Stealth Radio, where we move away from the mundane to gather insights from the shadows. From the shadows of enterprise and patient cybersecurity. Yes, we surely believe that traditional themes like endpoint software and zero trust are critical, but given massive advances in AI, remote and wearable device hacking, and data hostage negotiators, there's a much darker side to cybersecurity, and not everyone is quite willing to talk about it in public. Health Stealth Radio will thrive on these topics and encourage fireside spats to debate them. Here's your host, Frank Katita.
1: Good day, everyone. Wherever you are, uh, I'd like to welcome you to the premiere edition of Health Stealth Radio, uh, done in cooperation with Chime and Digital Health Insights therein. So, We're happy to have you. The nature of the show is that we are focusing on the shadows, insights from the shadows of healthcare, cybersecurity, and and patient experience. Uh, And as our premier guest today, we have Denise Anderson. Uh, Denise is the uh, president of Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, Health ISAC. And she'll explain a little bit about what that means. And she'll be talking to us about this very interesting area called hacktivism and what's happening and how geopolitical events around the world start shaping cybersecurity strategies uh, for companies, especially in a healthcare area where they're more prone to hacking of devices and, and databases. So without further ado, uh, Denise, uh, how about a, a short intro and, and, and tell us a little bit about what an ISAC is.
2: Sure. Thanks, Frank. So I am president and CEO of the Health ISAC, as you mentioned. I'm also chair of the National Council of ISAC. So I work with many ISACs. ISACs, or information sharing and analysis centers, were stood up under a presidential directive called PD-63 under President Bill Clinton. And at the time, the concern was Y2K. And that happened in 1998. The financial services sector took that as a a mission, and they stood up the FSISAC in 1999. After 9-11 and HSPD-7 under President Bush, The ISACs took on a physical nexus as well, so we're really all hazards. And what it is, is we are grouped within certain critical infrastructure sectors, of which the U.S. government has designated 16 currently, that are vital to the economy, security, and safety of our country. So basically, our owners and operators within healthcare, the health ISAC, for example, are owners and operators of medical device manufacturing companies, pharmaceutical manufacturing companies, hospitals healthcare delivery organizations, labs, radiological, anything that really touches the patient.
1: You know, one could argue that uh, the fact that it put hacktivism in the subject line in, in the title here is uh, to a certain extent clickbait, but uh, it, it is, it is very real. So I I'm, I'm wondering if for our audience, that's not quite as familiar with this concept uh, as, as you are, uh, if you could give me what your rough definition is of, of hacktivism and how, um, how it's starting to embody itself more and more around the world.
2: Yes, I think actually what I may do is describe a little bit about what the threat actors are, because hacktivists are kind of a unique beast in that scenario. So threat actors are anyone that wants to come after um, an organization, and there might be a a variety of ways that they do that. So there could be criminal motivation, and their motivation is purely financial. Uh, We see the nation-state motivation, and those... Motivations could be anything from trying to disrupt technology, being inside to get secrets, or just basically trying to uh, get some information if they need to, to understand where they are against what they see as their adversaries. And then, of course, you have hacktivists. We also have insiders. Hacktivists tend to be a little bit of a wild card in that, in most cases, they tend to just want to get a message out, whether it's that they don't like what's happening or uh, that they want to disrupt somebody that they think is doing something that they don't like. But we're seeing now, um, and this is why I brought up the different types of threat actors, where nation states have used hacktivist-type tactics or hacktivist groups to accomplish their motivations, as well as criminals trying to do it as well to disrupt or to keep the defender's eyes on something else, the DDoS attacks the distributed denial of service attacks, which is a tactic the hacktivists tend to use, so that they can then go in and steal the money behind the scenes. So it's a very mixed bag of things.
1: I, I think in many cases, again, to the, to the outsider, we view it as people coming in that disagree with things that Americans disagree with or agree with. Um, do you find that there's American hacktivism going on, too, that that there are people that are, I mean, that might be related to the Islamic people in in China? In uh, the communities there?
2: So I'd, I'll answer that in two different ways. so they, there are definitely u s. activists, and we saw back in the day there was a group called Anonymous who were very active um, when they were seeing things that they didn't like. Um, and so they were creating distributed denial of service attacks. And what those types of attacks are are really against websites and and you know disrupting access to websites for the most part. Uh, but what we've seen recently, and uh, we saw this in January and February of last year, for example, where when the news reports reported that the U.S. and the European Union were going to send tanks into Ukraine, that the hacktivist group called KillNet started threatening, believe it or not, hospitals. Um, and so they did distributed denial of service attacks against a number of hospitals in the U.S., and Europe it, just to create the message that they weren't happy with with the actions that the US government and the European government were taking.
1: Interesting, very interesting. Considering our audience has a, a number of CIOs and CISOs, chief information security officers uh in it, I I I'm I'm curious if the the cybersecurity strategy is is different for hacktivist type activities as opposed to your garden variety of other cybersecurity issues. Is is there are, are there hacktivist plugins that are going on that, that are related to that or is, is that done in a different way?
2: Mostly it is the distributed denial of service types of attacks. So that's that's their modus operandi uh, that we've seen for the most part. Now there could be some other ways that they do it. We're seeing, you know, certainly um, swatting attacks. Um, So you'll see stuff like that happening, Um, SWATting being where they call law enforcement or notify law law enforcement that there's, quote, unquote, a domestic scenario happening at somebody's house. And then the law enforcement shows up and is thinking, you know, in one case, it was, you know, recently was that there was um, a family member was holding another one hostage. And so here comes SWAT, the SWAT team on the front lawn, and the homeowner is like, what's going on? And uh, and, you know, it obviously creates a very dangerous situation. But again, they're trying to create a message and trying trying to make people uncomfortable. And we saw that. I don't know if you are familiar with Brian Krebs, but Brian Krebs certainly experienced that. He's he's a a popular um, tech writer, cybercrime, cyber cyber security writer. And he was the victim of several swatting attacks.
1: He was was one of the national security advisors on, on cybersecurity, right?
2: Uh I don't know that he he was a journalist with the Washington post. He had a column and and he has his own column now yeah
1: so so tell me uh you know things are so distributed these days in terms of cyber security wherever they are, healthcare, especially uh because of the the edge that, that people are operating uh under and and wearables anywhere from wearables to the data center how How do you see the structure and the collaboration of of this cyber security? infrastructure and protection uh, that you've commented on in the, before. I mean, it, it, how, how does an enterprise work on the, the ideal collaborative effort?
2: So I'll give an example. I have several examples, but I'll give an example from um, the kill net attacks that we saw last January and February. So we the, actually, we had a number of members in the EU see some of the message posts that the threat, threat actor was doing saying that they were going to attack hospitals. So they kind of gave us a teaser that they were going to do that, which is part of their um, tactic. And then uh, we were able to get the word out to all of the hospitals that were on their target list that, hey, you know, this, look out. This could be coming. We had a, a uh, university hospital who was not a member of Health ISAC at the time, but found out later after we shared information with them because we got information that they were on the target list, that they went for three days thinking they had a website misconfiguration as to why their website wasn't working, not realizing that it was an actually it was actually a DDoS attack. And so when they got the information from us, they were like, "Oh my gosh! If we had only known this, if we had had this information, we could have been dealing with that and solving the problem much quick, you know, much faster than you know waiting and figuring, trying to figure out what website misconfiguration we had." So that's the beauty of information sharing is that people are aware of the threats that are out there. They also, our members share best practice information with each other. So they'll say, hey, we tried this, this works for us, this didn't work for us. They'll ask questions of each other, like how are you handling this with your um, constituents or or in your operations, etc. And that's That's the beauty of it. We also, I could give you an example also from the financial services days, because I actually was employee number two at at the financial services ISAC. And in 2012, 2013, they experienced DDoS attacks from a nation state that was actually posing as a hacktivist group. So that was an interesting mix at that time. But they 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 were not happy with some of the U.S. policy at the time. It was sanctions that were being placed on them, and they took it out on the banks. So over a period of two years, the banks went through a number of very large, at the time, gigabytes of data that no one had ever seen before as far as a DDoS attack. And the sharing that took place amongst the companies and then we also brought in the IT and communications providers and the the DDoS mitigators into the conversation was so phenomenal that we ended up stopping the attacks because they became less effective. And that was all done through information sharing and learning tactics. Uh, so they would learn something like, with, within the bank uh, banking websites, they have ATM locators, for example, that harvest a lot of bandwidth. And what the attacker would do was go after that particular part of the site to hit it and then take up all the bandwidth to make the site go down. The banks learned, hey, let's put up a static, what they call the static site. So we had some insight into the threat actor's botnet, um, which was the way that they launched the DDoS attack. And we could see the script being loaded, so we knew a bank was about to be hit. Then what they would do is they would go up and throw up their static website so that the attack became ineffective, so to speak. So that was all done through sharing and community and being able to learn from these tactics and, and, and fight against them.
1: So I just reinforces the point that the there, there's a whole other non-technical aspect of breach response strategy that has to has, has to be implemented. I mean, I see so much of it as, okay, here's the fix. We put the alligator clips together. We stopped it. But just going from the, the reception desk to the chairman's office and the boardroom and having that softer side of breach response is really, really important.
2: Absolutely. I always say that, you know, it's people processing technology and most of the problem is people and process, and not necessarily the technology.
1: That's great. Uh, just for the people just joining, I, I'd like to welcome you to Health Stealth Radio, our premier edition here with Denise, and uh, this is coming to you from the shadows of uh, healthcare cybersecurity. So uh, we're, we're looking to get into the more skulky issues here, and Denise is our first guest and she's doing that very well today. Uh, you know, I, we're all victims of watching television. And so we watch all the stuff that's really the equivalent of a video clickbait on on streaming video and whatever we watch. Uh, you know, the one that we see sometimes, or it was in one of the shows, is related to um, hacking of, of of medical devices, and in some cases it could be a um, a pacemaker. And I think I read someplace uh, after I talked to you that that uh, Dick Cheney had to have. Some kind of special pacemaker uh, developed for him, as when he was in the uh, in the administration. Now, what, what do you what do you see as this the, this risk, and and especially one of our original conversations we talked about, or you talked about, is Israel being a major mecca of healthcare device manufacturing, and and, and what kind of cyber risk do they have at the manufacturer's level?
2: I you know I'm not going to say that that can't happen, but I think it is a little bit of the, in the realm of Hollywood, the medical devices. In many cases, a lot of the, the white hat, at, um, white hat at attackers or um, have been in the techniques that they've tried against medical devices, in most cases, you have to be very near in proximity or have certain information to be able to attack the device. I'm not saying that things can't be done, maybe even at the manufacturing level, if somehow an attacker got into a plant and was able to affect the quality of devices or that type of thing. But for the most part, I I do think that, yes, there is a risk, but I don't know how big the risk is at this point in time or the likelihood of attack, because it would take a lot of effort on an attacker's part to go after a device. That said, certainly it is a concern, and it is something that medical device manufacturers have been addressing. And we've worked very closely with FDA through the ISAC. We actually have a medical device security council where we bring in not only medical device manufacturers, but also the major users, the hospitals and the healthcare delivery organizations, to have conversations around how each one can help each other, because when you look at it, hospitals have tens of thousands of devices in their environment, and if there is a vulnerability that comes out, they have to figure out which device it is, how many devices do they have in their environment of that nature, are they affected by the vulnerability, and how they're going to go about patching them. So it is, it's is—it's a very complicated, complex issue, and there's a lot of great work being done in that area. And we're seeing things from FDA with around the software bill of materials and also vulnerability disclosure, responsible disclosure. So there's been a lot of great effort in that space. And as to your question about Israel and the geopolitical situation happening over there, yes, we're, Israel is seeing quite a bit of activity in that space. There was a hospital, uh, Ziv Medical Center, that they've claimed that Iran did an attack against them. Um, And of course, we're seeing the other impact from it is a lot of technology, security technology providers come out of Israel. And while they may not necessarily be attacked, although I think some are experiencing some kind of activity. The, it also is impacting production and shipping, so it's impacting the supply chain and the security services that these companies provide, so that's definitely a factor that organizations need to be aware of and, and plan
1: for. Well, it's obvious. it's one of the most obvious, but yet at the same time, you think, well... Wow. Disrupt the supply chain, you d- disrupted the entire industry, as we know from the, the from the pandemic. We don't have a whole lot of time left, and and I I, I like to get into some of the softer issues related to cybersecurity. And I'm looking at you as the personal brand called Denise, uh, and and getting into the cybersecurity business. And uh, it it just it, it's no secret that when you look at list of attendees at different events related to cybersecurity, uh, they are, in many cases are dominated by men. Uh, so my question is, what was your career trajectory like being a woman in cybersecurity? Did it make a difference? And do you think uh, that women bring in a different cybersecurity business or security sense than men do sometimes?
2: So interestingly enough, I was—I have—I was not a technical person. I have a, a business degree and an English degree, so I have a master's in in business administration. And I also was a firefighter, so I had emergency management. And when I was brought into – actually, firefighter, EMT, and then um, an instructor in that area. When I was brought into financial services ISAC, my boss at the time really liked my emergency management background experience, and so that was one of the key attractions to him. I also had a background in, in installing systems. So while I didn't have a technical degree, I understood how systems worked And so that, you know, really helped me in in where I came into FSISAC. But really, I don't necessarily, again, back to that point of people process technology, I don't necessarily see cybersecurity as technical in many cases. I mean, yes, you're going to have really technical people solving really technical things. But for the most part, it's... Thinking, right, critical thinking and trying to understand impacts to your organization or to the world writ large that can impact your situation. So I always say, you know, think outside the box when you hire people in cybersecurity. A journalist might be a great person to think about because they can connect dots in ways that other people can't. And so I think that it's really interesting to see how that happens, where a lot of people that are in the cybersecurity field, especially in the old days, kind of got pulled in for various reasons, because they were plugging a hole, and then became experts just based on their experience over the years. And I've certainly seen that. I've, I've worked with two industries now, both finance and health. So I've also, of course, through my role as the National Council of ISACs, worked very closely with. Um, all of the other critical infrastructure sectors. So I've been able to get a lot of insight and, and expertise in what goes on in critical infrastructure security. That, um, and then I think you've also, you know, with the, the field itself, we definitely have come a long way. I'm seeing it recently, too. Um, I used to go to RSA, and I would joke that I loved going to the bathroom at RSA because there never was a line. <laughs> um, you know, there's a line now for women. And we're certainly seeing it in Health ISAC, we're having a lot more women coming into senior roles within cybersecurity and, and in uh, basic organizational security. And it's really exciting to see. I do believe that they do think differently than men do. And I think it's, it's exciting.
1: You, you almost beg the question of how do they think differently?
2: Well, that's an interesting um, conversation. I don't know how in-depth I, I would go into it, but I did have a member of mine when I was an FSI Sec and he was a, an instructor in cybersecurity at a university, and he mentioned to me that he could see how women thought completely differently than men did. Me- women are very suspicious in nature, and so they're immediately starting to question things. And why is this happening? How is this happening? I don't know that men think that way. I, I mean, I could be generalizing, but that was a comment that he made to me in his experience. In And I certainly could agree with it because I, I certainly am suspicious and I'm always, I don't believe in coincidences, coincidences and I'm always trying to connect dots.
1: That's good. My, my wife would agree with the suspicious part, at least as it relates to my relationship with her. So I, I, it's interesting you brought up another point. I know we're short on time, but I, I've interviewed a lot of CISOs who were ex-military. And, and so I would, I would talk to them. Do you feel like military people are, are much better at security, cybersecurity, because of the nature of the beast of being the military and security? And they said, no, you sort of got it backwards. They said, it's not the fact that they are so security minded because they're in the military. But during these breaches and other parts of cybersecurity, they much better understand a chain of command. Uh, and, and so it's much more of the softer than carrying weapons and, 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 and having technological plugs that, you know, we've got to run this thing from the top to the bottom and bottom to the top. And we have to make sure that people understand that you you shut up and don't say anything or you speak up and say something. Uh, and that's that's why some of the military people are better. Not that regular non-military people can't do that kind of thing, but it's just baked into the beast at the uh, at the military level.
2: Right. Right, and you know we saw that in the FSI stack uh, DDoS attacks in 2012, 2013. One of the soft lessons learned was they had a decision by committee to move to mitigation against DDoS because it was so expensive at the time. They realized they couldn't do that. The, the timing was so quick that they had to go on one decision maker, one or two, right, to make that decision and move to mitigation. The other thing they learned was to they had a technical bridge, and then they had a bridge line for everybody else because it made them more effective in dealing with the incident.
1: So Denise, just, just, just one follow-up question. I mean, if you had to look at some of the more creative hacks and, and breaches that, that are happening out there in this, uh, in this geopolitical area, especially, uh, who, who gets the, uh, the most creative award that you've seen?
2: Oh, I think definitely Black Cat Ransomware Group. They actually reported to the Securities and Exchange Commission that one of the victims that they ransomed did not report to the sector uh, to the SEC as as required by the new um, SEC compliance rules. So I thought that was very creative. I don't know what's going to happen with that, or if the SEC even did anything. But talk about trying to to drum up some uh, business there.
1: Well, I, this has been a fantastic uh, intro uh, and premiere of uh, of uh, Health Stealth Radio. And thank you so much for being our first guest. Uh, some very very great insights and and. I'm going to be stealing the line about the bathroom, the RSA bathroom line. It's something that, that it's probably going to get, uh, it's going to get spammed someplace uh, in the future. So I hope we can have you come back again, uh, as we're not going to have any shortage of, of, of turmoil in the world and reactions to it thereof. So again, I think, uh, you know, this is a great session. Uh, we've got so many more questions that we could ask and go into different directions on each one of these, especially, at, at, you know, I'd like to take some time at another point talking about the non-technical type of security that you talked about uh, uh, related to the infrastructure and and fences and buildings and so on which I think are, are just as prone to uh, to attacks as, as the uh, software and hardware itself so again thank you for their
0: time and
1: uh, we'll see you in a future episode I'm sure
2: okay thanks bye-bye
0: thank you for joining us today in the shadows for this episode of health Stealth radio with Frank Katita. If you like the program, please be sure to share your comments on our social media sites or feel free to contact us with suggestions for new and stealthy show themes. We look forward to welcoming you again for our next broadcast. In the meantime, stay safe out there.